Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. This is the thing I think that's most exciting for us working in climate is that we are witnessing one of the largest societal transformations probably that we'll ever see. And we're right at the start of it. And over the next decade, we're going to see just an explosion of growth and opportunity in this space. Last year, over $40 billion in venture capital went to over 900 climate tech companies. To put that in context, that's double what it was just the year before. And yet, this is just a fraction of climate entrepreneurship. In addition to these hundreds of venture-backed startups, there's hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, of small businesses turning their sights to climate impact. Most are not a fit for or interested in venture capital, but they still have financing needs. This is the market that Dimitri Gurchinson and Aaron Davis are serving with their startup, Enduring Planet. They offer non-dilutive funding on founder-friendly terms. While there's a ton of coverage of the venture capital market, Dimitri and Aaron bring unique perspectives to the incredibly diverse and expansive field of climate entrepreneurship. Full disclosure, I'm a big fan of Enduring Planet and recently made a small investment in their seed round. I think you'll see why I'm so excited by their potential. Here we go. Aaron and Dimitri, welcome to Invested in Climate. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Great to have you here today. Where actually do I find you both today? I'm in Washington, D.C. And I'm in Portland, Oregon. And is that where you both are always located? Yep. Yep. All right. So another bicoastal founding team. We've talked to a couple of teams that are working remotely. How is founding a company together while working virtually going? Well, maybe I'll answer first and then Aaron can confirm or deny. (laughs) Aaron and I had actually never met in person before starting this company together. We had had a number of engagements by Zoom an email, you know, I was working at Meta, formerly Facebook. Aaron was at SEMA pitching us for fundraising, but we we never met. And then uh, since starting the company, I think we've been in the same place twice in now wow. a year. So it's been a trip. I think it's working pretty well. I don't know, Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's going great. We, um, I've worked remotely on a remote team for the last seven years, previously at SEMA as well. So the, the style is, it works for me. I prefer not to go to an office and 
I think, um, yeah, we make time for each other every day. And yeah, our team is also the extended team is based in Pakistan. We have an outsourced engineering team in Ukraine, Russia. So we're, we're really all over the place. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure someone is writing the book on starting a company with a virtual partner. And you guys could be a part of that. But it definitely seems to be something that especially with the pandemic has taken off and people seem to be doing really well with it. Well, I'm thrilled to have you here today. Let's dive in. I'd love to hear what is Enduring Planet and what's the problem you're aiming to solve? Dimitri, let's start with you. Yeah. So Enduring Planet is a fintech lending platform for the new climate economy. So we offer flexible, fast, founder-friendly capital for entrepreneurs across the climate ecosystem. So whether they're folks running small and medium-sized businesses, startups, we have credit offerings for them. And the problem that we're solving is that within the climate ecosystem, there's quite a lot of limitations around the capital that's available to folks, uh, whether they're venture-backable, in which case they often have just venture capital available to them, which is expensive and dilutive, complicated, biased, exclusive. There's all sorts of limitations with BC. And we say that with fully open eyes because we're a BC-backed startup. And then for small and medium-sized businesses, often the capital that's available to them is even more limited because they're generally just looking at bank credit instruments. And uh, those products are reserved for folks that are profitable and have long operating histories, have lots of collateral, can offer personal guarantees. And so when the world is on fire and we desperately need to build and grow solutions quickly, we can't really depend on antiquated models of capitalization for these businesses. And so we're looking to change that. Very good. So if I understand right, really, you're looking at a sweet spot of relatively early stage but not fitting the venture capital profile for whatever reason. Uh, so earlier stage than a typical bank would offer a loan to, but not offering the type of, of scale or return size that venture capital would seek. Is that right? We go after a variety of companies. So we're definitely open to VC-backed companies. We see ourselves fitting in in different places. So the company can be raising a current round and we see ourselves as complementary to that, or we could take, you know, 500K of a $2 million raise. We also come in in between rounds. Um, so companies that are looking to bolster their growth, we'd love to help them do that and, and raise a better next round. And then a third type of company that we'll engage with is a non-venture backed company that has good organic growth and they're generally break even or profitable. Um, and we love to go after those kind of companies too. Yeah, I think the key for us is that a business has, at least for the time being, consistent and growing revenue. And this is maybe one thing to clarify is that today we invest via a product called revenue-based financing exclusively, which requires companies to have revenue, growth, and strong gross margins. They could be venture-backable, they could be SMBs, it doesn't really matter. Within our current publicly shared portfolio, we have two venture-backed companies and one non. Over time, we will expand our offering beyond revenue-based financing, and there will be lots of different credit instruments that will serve companies across the spectrum of the new climate economy. So they could be pre-revenue, post, early, late, SMB, startup, 
doesn't matter. We hope to offer capital that's founder friendly to entrepreneurs across the universe of climate. So tell us, as a founder, what would be their experience of working with Enduring Planet? Why would they be interested in working with you either in addition to or instead of other sources of capital? We're building our whole brand around being founder friendly. So at this stage, we what we can offer is capital on terms that they likely can't access. We are offering a debt product and typically companies can only access VC funding or grant funding, um, which is either expensive money-wise or time-wise to go after. And, you know, we really want to support our entrepreneurs. So companies coming into our portfolio and those not coming into our portfolio, we want to provide support in fundraising. Dimitri is an absolute beast at making introductions. I think he's made, I don't know, how many introductions have you made in the last few months? I think we usually make between 60 and 100 intros a month for startups and investors. And that's out of, you know, probably 3x that many requests. So it's quite quite a bit. We've made three investments to date. So these these aren't for companies only in our portfolio. So we see ourselves, you know, as we expand both our product offering into different types of products, non-dilutive products in particular. Um, we also see ourselves expanding the support and the networking and all of the other things that go into building a company. I think also to your question, Jason, about sort of the experience for founders. So our application for funding takes about 10 minutes for founders to complete. If they connect their financials through our secure API, we can get them a term sheet in about a week, which is incredibly fast for debt. It's also even, I think, pretty fast for equity, especially at the stages that we invest in. The rest of the process takes maybe two to three hours of time for a founder in terms of all of the responding to diligence questions that we might have which is dramatically less time than raising any other capital. And then, you know, they get funding in their bank account in a month, which is pretty fast. Also, the contractual process, the sort of the legal agreements are very short and very simple. So there's not a lot of legal fees and a lot of back and forth between lawyers. And then, you know, as Aaron mentioned, our funding is non-dilutive. We also don't ask for personal guarantees. We don't ask for collateral. There's no complicated covenants. We're not restricting how folks can manage and run their business. And so in the end, our capital ends up being, I would argue, basically the best option you can get at the stage that we typically invest in other than, you know, maybe free grants which in the end, like aren't always that free. And they're really, really difficult to access. There's usually a much smaller pool of capital than interest. The 10 minute application process, that sounds amazing. It takes me at least 10 minutes to order a pizza for my family. So that's impressive. I'm curious about the size of the market here. We know that venture capital in climate tech has been growing incredibly quickly. We know that companies of all types are making climate commitments, but you're looking at a different kind of investment opportunity here. How many types of climate companies are you looking at? What is the size of the market and what are your expectations for its growth? I think we can look at sort of the two halves, right? They're not actual halves, but we'll sort of break it up that way. On one side are the VC backable businesses. Our estimate is anywhere between 50 and 100,000 globally, like VC backable companies that have climate as a 
as a core component of their mission. We've seen estimates that range between like call it 10,000 and 50 to 100,000. I think it really depends on where you draw the box. But when we looked at Crunchbase, and this is sort of corroborated by our folks at ClimateBase, they did a similar analysis. They came out with like 60K. Now that obviously spans the gamut of like pre-funding, pre-anything, all the way to very late stage. On the SMB side, the estimate is much harder to make because what's included is a pretty broad range of businesses. So any small business related to solar or wind or energy efficiency is in scope, right? Any business that's related to you know, reducing emissions in other ways would be in scope. So for example, if you have a company that does HVAC and they exclusively work on heat pumps, that would be in scope for us. And so quantifying how many of those businesses are there in the US or in the world is pretty difficult, but it's in the millions uh, because- In the millions. In the millions. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, if you start to include things that are like adjacent, but still incredibly necessary for climate transition. So for example, what about like mechanics that work exclusively on EVs? I would argue that that's a pretty critical component of a transition to electrification of our transportation system. Most folks would not put those businesses into like the climate bucket. We would. So the universe is actually pretty broad for us. And are there particular categories that are exciting to you? You mentioned that you're looking for high growth, high margins, and post-revenue. But within all those different spaces, are there exciting areas that you're most interested in seeing companies? So we get this question a lot. And I think that first and foremost, we are excited about the entire transition. It doesn't matter to us if you're selling low carbon diapers or you have a SaaS business that's marketing to corporates or you're doing solar sales lead gen, you know, like all of that is exciting to us. It's equally exciting to us. I think in terms of our revenue-based financing product, there's a few like business models that work particularly well for now. And those are anything in software, especially with recurring subscriptions, any recurring service business model with low churn and good margins. We really like businesses that sell hardware coupled with software, although we'll do investments with just pure like pure hardware, or pure durable goods sales, as long as there's consistent growing revenue and strong margins. A lot of e-commerce businesses actually look really interesting too, especially if they have repeat purchases. So if you have like, you sell low carbon toilet paper, who gives a crap, for example, would be a great business for us to fund because they actually have a subscription, but it's like a durable good that they sell to consumers. I would say any, any business where revenue is consistently growing month over month, sometimes quarter over quarter, we can also accommodate. And then they have healthy margins. Like we are happy to look at that for our revenue-based financing. Give us a sense of how long you've been around and how many companies you've looked at. So just zooming into this a bit more in terms of how many companies are out there and what's your overall reach right now. Dimitri officially incorporated the company in May of 2021, and I joined in July. And we've made three investments so far into a water SAS company, microgrid controls company, and a composting company. and you know, we've evolved a lot in our process, you know, since we launched. So we were doing everything manually. And now we have our application um, live that we can take many more applications. We also have, you know, our pipeline sourcing has dramatically changed. um, Whereas we were 
you know, really trying to go after, you know, companies we thought were interesting on different lists and that kind of thing. The, the shift has been made towards um, companies coming to us either through, you know, podcasts or different um, articles. We also have a cool scout program um, where we've engaged 25 different scouts to be on the lookout for potential deals for us. You know, I think that really helps also with our, um, our diversity and inclusion lens that we can talk about a little bit later. But in terms of like numbers of companies we've looked at, it's in the hundreds. I don't know how many applications we have on our our back end right now that have actually like gone through the full process. I think we've received since April probably about 20 to 25 applications that come through the platform that actually make it all the way through. There are some that get sort of automatically rejected because they're, you know, out of, they're either international or maybe they don't meet basic requirements. You know, we probably reject currently like 95% of the companies we look at because they don't meet one of our investment thresholds. But we're constantly iterating how we manage sort of the top of the funnel to make sure that we're not biasing our investment process against businesses one way or another. So we try to make it as quantitative as possible, especially because we have a mandate and it's actually built into our corporate DNA to support underrepresented founders and diverse teams. And so our process attempts to sort of eliminate a lot of the things that often happen in in the VC ecosystem where you need, you know, you need to be referred in, you need to have come from a certain place or work somewhere and you have to have sort of a certain pedigree and look a certain way. We try to make our decisions almost entirely through quantitative analysis. So I think right now we probably have about a little over 10 million in active deal pipeline. These are companies that we've qualified and are in various stages of conversation. Sometimes we'll meet a company in advance of their sort of application and they'll, we'll spend a bunch of time sort of talking and then they'll formally apply and then we'll fund. In other cases, a company might apply and there'll be some issues with some element of their business where we'll say, okay, we need to put this deal on hold and come back to it. Like for example, our fourth transaction, which we've signed docs on, but it hasn't closed. We actually looked at that deal about a year ago, right when we were starting out and we ended up not investing. And then we got back together with a company a year later. And now we're just waiting on some closing conditions to be met to fund. So we will do somewhere at most 25 transactions by the end of this first fund that we have, that we're closing now. Um, the goal is to try to do that by the end of the year, but, but who knows? We have until I think next April to actually deploy all the funding. And that's just a five and a half million dollar pilot facility. The next one will be 50 million and we'll be doing quite a bit more investing in the space once that's ready to go. I'd love to go deeper into the issue you brought up about this being a process that's more fair and more accessible for underrepresented founders, something that traditional venture capital and definitely traditional banks have struggled with. Uh, so tell us more. How is it that Enduring Planets is able to better serve, better find, better collaborate with underrepresented founders who are so critical to not just a successful climate transition, but also a more equitable one? 
I think first and foremost, we formed the company as a public benefit corporation and entrenched in our mission, a goal of supporting underrepresented founders in the space. So that's something that will never go away. It will always be part of our corporate DNA. Two, within our underwriting model and our risk card, we incorporated criteria around sort of the diversity of the founder, the diversity of the team, the communities that the company serves, and that improves the scoring for the company. So if they are led by a founder of color or their team is more than 50% diverse or they're serving you know, marginalized communities, they'll actually perform better in our underwriting process. You know, we don't prioritize referrals. We do have a scout program, but we don't treat those referrals any better than we would any application coming into the mix. In fact, the goal of the scout program is to expose founders in the space to us and have them, you know, then apply. And our scouts are very diverse. So we actually, we specifically picked our scout community to try to improve our community, our funnel. I mean, I think that application process is inherently unbiased because like we don't look at or talk to the company face-to-face usually before, you know, we do do some like pre-calls, but generally they apply and like they move to the next round or don't move to the next round based solely on their financials. So like they've already kind of gotten through that bias. I think Dimitri really covered it. Like we focused on their financials and the, the quality of the company itself. One place that I would sort of argue that like we as a sector or capital providers in general can do better is like the really early stage companies led by underrepresented founders don't always have the family and friends access to that like really early stage capital. And and we're not playing there at the moment. You know, we we require companies to have revenue and runway. And so we can't make a difference in that earlier stage. And I think it's like really necessary. So we see a more equal amount of, you know, companies in general being led by women or people of color or whatever it is. That's the nature of, of the funding environment right now. I will say, though, that our pipeline, as in qualified deals, 70% of them meet one of our diversity, equity, inclusion criteria. I think a part of that is owed to just online democratizing access to information and people like anybody can apply. And I do think, you know, we have a lot of women and people of color scouts um, who also will hopefully contribute to that because they operate in their circles that we don't necessarily operate in. Well, that certainly sends a great message, especially to anyone that says that they're not investing in underrepresented founders because there aren't enough of them working in these spaces or working on climate. I think that's a great data point to show that they're absolutely out there and very much worth working with and investing in. I'd love to zoom in and get a bit more specific. Compost Colorado, New Sun Road, Aquoso, three really interesting companies. These are the deals that you've already signed. So the first is a closed loop composting service. The others, uh, uh, New Sun Road, uh, software for renewable microgrids. Aquoso is focused on climate risk data. What I love about these three is they really do show the diversity of companies and business models that are needed to address 
the climate crisis. Tell us more, maybe just a couple sentences about each, but also on this reflection of you're not specializing. It's it's not about going deep into one particular business model, but instead you're you're seeing the value of of working with a variety of companies. So tell us a bit more about the breadth of the space. This is the thing I think that's most exciting for us working in climate is that we are witnessing one of the largest societal transformations probably that we'll ever see. And we're right at the start of it. And over the next decade, we're going to see just an explosion of growth and opportunity in this space. And this is, I think, not just exciting for us, it's exciting for all of the folks who might want to transition to careers that make them feel great at the end of the day, because they're saving the planet. It's an opportunity for folks who might be doing research in this space or going to business school. Like This is the coolest, most exciting economic shift I think we'll ever experience. You know, we right now, in terms of the active deals that we have sort of through various stages, they include companies that are working to reduce water waste and improve the operations of water utilities so that they can be more efficient, more adaptable to a changing climate. We have folks who are producing furniture in a way that's more sustainable and more um, less extractive and better aligned with circular economy principles. We have uh, companies that are doing efficient agricultural lighting. We were invested in by a large clean tech corporate as part of our pre-seed round. And we are partnering right now to offer better sort of credit options for their SMB partners. So there's just this cornucopia of opportunities in the space. And every day we talk to a new company that is building something that none of us would have ever really thought about. And it's just wild and, and awesome. Erin, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I think we also, you know, are seeing an explosion of these types of companies because like our generation is more focused on it, having grown up with it. You know, we see more entrepreneurs doing that. Um, We also see capital being driven towards this space, which as an entrepreneur, you want to make sure that there's there's capital available to invest in your company. And I think that shift kind of anecdotally, I see and talk to a lot of family offices and small foundations and high net worth individuals who are having a generational shift of wealth. These investors are younger and more focused on climate. And I think that's like a really exciting opportunity and just our, I don't know, what are we like older millennials or something like we're taking power and and wealth into a new direction and pushing, you've seen like the push of the impact of social media and kind of making sure that companies put their money where their mouth is. And so even like on the institutional side you know, church pension funds and, and large, large corporate starting foundations and starting to shift more capital into this space um, is also driving the growth. Let's go deeper into that. I noticed in your pitch deck, there was a statement that institutional capital wants to invest more in climate startups, but needs fixed income intermediaries. 
I think this point is really key to understanding the opportunity you're facing, but I'd love to hear in your own words what it means and really what convinced you that fixed income intermediaries were a missing piece of the climate innovation puzzle. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to quantum of funding. Like these large institutions have huge sums of money that they can deploy, but it has to be in a very particular you know, in a fixed income opportunity. My previous company at SEMA, I worked with Church Pension Group, AXA, MetLife. They were all investors into our funds. And the key was, you know, having fixed, reliable payments. And so they're really the key to unlocking this trillion dollar crisis. Like, I think what we're doing with our first fund is a proof of concept fund. So we're getting money from highly catalytic, highly impactful investors, family offices, foundations, and high net worth who also see this opportunity. We need to prove out this concept and say, hey, look, these are amazing companies to invest in. They need different types of non-dilutive capital. And we're proving that we can do that. And, you know, fund number two, we're not a new new fund manager anymore. Um, and we've had a track record of a year to get these investments off the ground. Um, and that's what institutional investors need to see. If you look at the total landscape of capital required to address the climate crisis, I mean, the estimates vary quite a bit, but we gravitate towards like five trillion a year. That's a number that McKinsey recognizes. There's a few groups that grab, that also align around that estimate. Today, well, based on the most recent numbers, about 650 to 700 billion a year was invested in the last two years into climate. So that's one eighth, one ninth. That's a lot of gap to fill. And within the 700 billion that's invested, about a third is balance sheet capital. So it's not project finance, it's not infrastructure finance, it's not you know, folks spending money on their own operations, large corporates. It's like money invested specifically into the balance sheets of companies to drive climate goals. So that third, that 200 something billion, that will need to scale eight to 10X as well on par with the rest of the industry. And the gap is only going to grow. And so while there's quite a lot of explosion and expansion of new venture funds in climate, folks raising LP money, there are lots of capital providers, large institutions that want to deploy their investments into climate who have already done their LP work, but they have requirements. And this is what Aaron was talking about around getting the rest of their portfolio invested into fixed income opportunities. And so if nobody's offering fixed income opportunities, that money's just not going to get deployed. It's just going to sit on the sidelines. And that seems like a pretty terrible mistake to us. Or they go into like ESG kind of like not really true climate opportunities because they need to check a box. So you've described a landscape where there are millions of SMBs that are already focusing on climate to some extent, tens of thousands of venture-backed startups, and uh, a lot of capital going to these companies. But what you're really saying is that it's just the beginning. We need millions more SMBs. We need many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of more venture-type businesses. And we need many new types of investments and 
types of capital that's available to these companies. And so you've started with revenue-based financing. It's not something that everyone is familiar with, of course, though. So I'd love to go deeper into what revenue-based financing is, how it works, and really how you decided to start with that as your first product. Revenue-based financing is in some ways a relatively new instrument in the finance landscape, and in other ways, it's an age-old instrument. Um, it's basically just an investment against future revenue. And so there are other instruments that look a lot like that, joint ventures, factoring, lots of products where folks give people money and it's contingent on some degree of performance. In our case, our revenue-based financing is a fixed-term fixed term-ish credit instrument. So we lend typically between one and three-year terms. There is no formal security. So there's no collateral, there's no personal guarantees, there's no liens. We give a company cash and they, over the course of the time period that we determine, will pay us a fixed portion of their revenue until certain performance milestones are met. And then that revenue share will tamper down so that we're not overly extractive to the business. It's an interesting product because it, unlike traditional debt, doesn't have any of those security, collateral, personal guarantee requirements, which are often very exclusive. Like the, If you're not a wealthy founder and your business doesn't have a ton of collateral, you usually can't access that kind of debt. It's also interesting because there's not a fixed principal and interest repayment stream. And so with a traditional bank loan or, or you know, whatever other credit instrument, often you have to pay a certain amount regardless of how your business is performing. But in our case, if a business has a rough month, they pay us commensurately to that rough monthness and we make less money. And so we actually end up taking a lot more risk than other lenders who might be serving the same ecosystem. It also, because of the structure, it allows us to underwrite and lend faster because they're fairly basic specific criteria that if they're met and we can then model out revenue effectively, then like it, it's a done deal. It doesn't require us to go and do diligence on their inventory and figure out if we can sell it or, or do diligence on their personal assets and their personal credit scores. Like a lot of that is taken out because it's an unsecured credit product. I think. Also, to your question about why we picked this tool, one is because we think it's when structured the way that we've structured it, we think it's particularly founder friendly. And we really wanted to like sort of put our, our money where our mouths are in terms of being truly a founder focused financial services company in this space. Two, it lends itself really well to automation. That's why there's lots of other sort of automated RBF lenders in other ecosystems, um, e-commerce, SaaS, etc. It also generates probably one of the most robust data sets because it requires an active connection to banking, payment processing, and accounting, which is what we ask for as part of our loan process. And so what it creates is both uh, an opportunity for founders to access really fast capital, but it also gives us unparalleled visibility into the market that then allows us to create other instruments that are best adapted for the companies that we're either already serving or the companies that we could not serve with RBF, but now we have a better sense of like how to structure alternative instruments to support those founders as well. I believe your value prop for founders is really strong. No dilution, no collateral, no personal guarantees, apply quicker than I can order a pizza, get a term sheet in a week, get your funding in 30 days, 
it almost sounds too good to be true. And I know that revenue-based finance is growing, uh, but it's still a relatively new and small space. And as you mentioned, you take on uh, higher risks. So how does your model protect you from the risks of investing in companies in such a streamlined process and without requiring equity, collateral, personal guarantees? What does it mean for your own business and your own viability? So I think the answer to this is really embedded across our entire process. So one, the structure of the instrument, if the company underperforms, we have mechanisms in the terms that sort of extend the loan a little bit to allow us to at least recover our principal as part of their sort of overall repayment stream. And our terms, by the way, are entirely public on our website. So folks can see what they look like before they apply. There's no surprises. There's no gotchas. So that's one. There's some protection there. And we're constantly iterating on how we can think about downside risk. And so as we make those changes, we then update the term sheet on the website so that folks are always seeing the most up-to-date thinking on risk. Two, I think a lot of it comes down to our underwriting process and our minimum hurdle requirements. So those weren't picked out of thin air. We worked with founders of other alternative credit firms and, and learned about their process and we got their risk cards and credit policies. And so we built a lot of our base criteria on that. So we, we need to see companies generating a certain amount of revenue. They need to be growing a certain amount. They need to have historical operations of a certain time period, gross margins, runway, et cetera. And so there's quite a lot of hurdles to cross before we fund. We are also very active investors. So I think Aaron mentioned before that we make introductions for folks for VCs. We actually have a pretty robust network of co-investors, partners, accounting firms, designers, marketing firms, you name it. And so we spend a pretty meaningful amount of time helping founders um, even before we invest in them to help them get on track um, to grow and be successful. And, you know, if a company is underperforming, we don't just sit back and watch. Like we, we try to help as much as we can. We make introductions. We sit down with their founding team and think through operational issues. And so I think over time, that active engagement will probably change as we scale, because obviously Aaron and I can't sit down with every founder when we're doing a billion dollars worth of lending in a year. But we'll likely build a team internally and of partners that can continue to provide similar support to founders in our community, because obviously, if they're not performing, we're not performing. And so it actually aligns our incentives really well in the near term and in the long term with companies. So I think those are sort of the main things. There's also, you know, portfolio construction questions around diversification, maximum exposure to any individual company, you know, limiting our exposure to certain sectors where there might be correlated risk. I think there's there's definitely things that we can do at scale there as well. But overall, you know, it's a question of having the right underwriting criteria, modeling revenue effectively, predicting future performance effectively, and being good partners. And so we think that the combination of all of those things makes our risk commensurate with the return that we're seeking with every investment. And as I understand it, and this is part of your plan for the future, Part of your model is to use technology to improve the process of evaluating investment opportunities. Tell us more. How does this work? Yeah, so right now, we plug in fully to a company's banking, accounting, and commerce platform. So we have direct access on a, a real-time basis to all of their data. So we, we use that for you know, our initial underwriting 
and maintain that throughout the life of the loan if it's eventually funded. So even just having real-time access is, is a huge benefit where we can intervene early if a loan is underperforming. We're not waiting for a month after the quarter ends for a company to self-report where we're actively monitoring. The next phase of our product development is about automating revenue prediction. There's a lot of tools out there, but they they haven't quite met our mark of usefulness yet. Um, so we're we're building out our you know very basic but very important component is just revenue and cash categorization of transactions. So every transaction that comes into a company's bank account, we need to determine if it's income or something else. And then that will enable us to develop a tool that can categorize revenue, expenses, whatever, which currently takes quite a bit of time from an analyst perspective that we cut down and are able to get to the bottom of a company's health in a short period of time. Um, so this then plays into revenue prediction and eventually building to the machine learning side of things where we can can have, you know, a machine tell us, okay, we think the revenue will be this. Dimitri, you mentioned that you won't be able to be as hands-on when you are investing a billion dollars or more of capital a year. So give us a sense, how big are you looking to grow or what sort of scale are you expecting to reach within the next, say, three to five years? The world's our oyster, man. (laughs) It's interesting. We get this question a lot. I think that there's a universe in which we do a quarter billion of lending in the next five years, and there's a universe in which we do a billion or more. It depends a lot on the products that we offer. It depends a lot on how long it takes us to raise funds. It depends a lot on sort of the like reception we get from the industry, although I think the so far the feedback from founders has been incredibly positive and validating. Our internal goal is to, you know, get this first pilot fund deployed, raise a $50 million facility, and then basically double our funding raised every year moving on from there. And so I think that's pretty aggressive for this kind of model and, and this space, but we don't really mess around. And so we're going to do our best to get there. If you look at comparable players, you know, you look at, Lighter Capital, for example, which is one of the pioneers of revenue-based financing, they've done a little bit more than a than a quarter billion of lending. I think it's been under under ten years. ClearBank, which is offers revenue-based financing for e-commerce companies on sort of shorter, I would say more aggressive terms, they did over a billion dollars worth of lending in their first five years. That's the range we're thinking about, and and we're pretty excited about. The opportunity set here. I'm trying to grapple with the scale of that because you also mentioned that, oh, 95% of the applicants don't make it through your process. And so you're looking at thousands or tens of thousands of companies every year to be able to hit those numbers. And so from an operational standpoint, there's some challenges in doing that. But also it's one points to, again, that there's that many companies out there. And 
ultimately you will be investing in thousands of companies to be able to hit those sorts of investment numbers. Well, and to be clear, right, like today we invest between 100 and 500K. Those numbers will dramatically change as we invest at scale and we'll start offering much larger tickets to later stage companies. Right now, today, it's about the same amount of effort for us to invest 100K as it is to invest 10 million. We just don't invest 10 million. We can't afford to. And so I think we always want to offer products across the sort of continuum of businesses. So we always want to have that 100K check offering for folks, but the top end is going to dramatically expand as we go on. And so, yes, we'll need to look at thousands of companies every year. And I think that's fine and exciting for us. But I think also this is why we're building a platform that we are aiming to make almost entirely automated. If we can do that, then going through a transaction isn't 30 days, it's 24 hours. And that means we can do infinitely more transactions every year. One of the reasons I was so excited to speak with you both is that I think you have a unique perspective based upon the scale that you're operating at and thinking about, and also that you're looking at a part of climate entrepreneurship that many many are looking away from, um, you know, particularly being inclusive of SMBs and being inclusive of companies that aren't trying to get venture capital type returns, but are building healthy revenue streams and, and strong margins. And so I'm curious... Your advice for others, and particularly individual investors that are interested in climate, what would you say to people that are really climate curious or climate motivated and looking to make investments in in companies that are doing good work, but maybe aren't typical venture investments? I think there's an increasing number of ways in which sort of consumers or individuals can participate in this market. And I think the same is true for family offices and larger institutional investors. There's, if you're accredited, there's a ton of opportunity on AngelList, lots of syndicates that are very active in the space and investing very early. There's also now folks building retirement, sort of retirement investment work around climate. So Carbon Collective, they're close friends of ours, and they offer 401k and IRA options for individuals. And, you know, obviously, there's also like ETFs and public market stuff where folks can invest into zero carbon or fossil free or sort of other exchange traded funds, and then individual publicly traded companies that are in climate, so Tesla, Proterra, whatever, you name it, there's, there's a whole universe out there. I think, you know, one day we might find a way in which we can involve the crowd in our fundraising process, either in our on the equity side of the business or, or maybe on the debt side. It's, it's not so easy, but we find it really appealing to like build community around our investment process. And so we're constantly thinking about ways to do that. But I, I think generally, you know, this is not investment advice. So please, whoever's listening to this, don't take it as such. But, you know, the world is changing. And climate only goes in one direction right now, which is that it's going to get a lot worse. And as things get worse, the world will respond because it has to. And I don't think that the economic system really felt the pain of climate yet. And it is definitely feeling it now. Thinking about how you can put your capital to work to support and take part and benefit from that transition is a worthwhile endeavor. And there's lots of resources out there online to like figure it out. And so if you care, which I think everybody should, but not everybody does, but if you do, 
think about ways in which you can put your money to work as well in the space because if there's ever been a time, it's now. Aaron, Dimitri, thank you so much for this great conversation. Wishing you both the best of luck. We'll be excited to see how Enduring Planet grows and very excited to continue to follow your success. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.